We turn in God's word this morning to the book of Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20 and this morning we'll be considering uh, verses 10 through the end of the chapter. I'm sure like myself, many of you enjoy a nice campfire. Some of us enjoy the fire much larger than others, but we probably all enjoy some time out there. We set up our campfire chairs, we have a nice circle around, and we sit with probably family or friends, and we enjoy a time together. And if you have children or grandchildren, that time of enjoyment is sometimes interrupted by the grandchildren running through the chairs. And then generally, we stop and remind them, at least hopefully to some extent, we remind them there are some campfire rules. You can't run near the fire. And generally, we probably remind them of the dangers of the fire, of the fact that 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 is something that could hurt, it would hurt badly, and so we remind them. Five minutes later, or less, they're probably running between the chairs again. Only this time, it's probably not just a little, hey, remember the rule. There might be a grabbing hold of them, looking at them sternly and saying, remember the rule. Yes, yeah, can't run, can't run. Five minutes later, here comes the herd of them through again. Probably, as mom or dad, you're now going to take a little more action. You might say, if you do that again, it's bedtime. You can't be around the campfire if you're not going to obey the campfire rules. Or it might become a physical, a corporal punishment of some sort. And you're not doing that because you're seeking to be the world's meanest parent in the world. In fact, you probably have sat by a number of campfires and watched other people's children run around and you're going, aren't they going to say something? Don't they realize how dangerous it is? Don't they realize that, that their children running could easily fall? Don't they know there's a campfire rule? If you're going to run, it's got to be on the outside. In fact, even if you're going to walk, it should be on the outside. I want you to hear Leviticus 20 with a little bit of that thought in the background. God is warning. He's warning of very dangerous situations. But he knows that we're also sinners, and so he knows there are lessons to be learned, and he knows there are punishments to be given. Perhaps not always just for the one who is involved. Perhaps it's for our other children as well. So Let's hear God speak to us this morning in his breathed out word. Leviticus chapter 20, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. 
If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. And they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and he and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them. That the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. And you shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, their blood shall be upon them. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word that we could read and hear read this morning. Lord, and under the message of God's way, we pray that you'll give Pastor Bob the words to speak this morning, that we will heed the warnings of these books, and that you'll help us to live lives that are more pleasing in your sight, out of love and gratitude for you. For as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Lord, we pray that you'll be with us now, that we'll pay attention closely to the words spoken this morning, and please you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we want to look at this passage under two headings this morning. First of all, the immorality, and secondly, the reminders. The immorality and the reminders. And as we turn to this passage, it's just yucky. It's just yucky. When we read of these sins that are being committed here and that God is warning about, it's just gross. 
The word perversion was used in the passage, and certainly that comes out. But you see, this is a reminder to us of man's sinfulness. God is not inventing these things. God is speaking this way in Leviticus chapter 20 because there is indeed nothing new under the sun. He is speaking this way not because God is thinking, well, you know, someday there might be people who actually do this and maybe we ought to have some laws against this. It's because it was being practiced. It's because it was being done. So God comes with his law and says, no, no, this is not the way you are to live. These sinful things that are mentioned here in Leviticus chapter 20 have been, are, and always will be considered sin in the sight of the Lord. Nothing changes that. That's why the rule, that's why the law. They've come out of Egypt. They're traveling. They're on their way to Canaan. There are going to be peoples that they are going to meet, not only along the way, but once they get to Canaan, who are involved in these things. And most likely there are some Israelites who are engaged in these practices as well. It's a reminder to us that culture does not progress in holiness on its own. The world is not getting better and better and better. Unlike that which our young people are taught in public school, in regards to evolution, everything's always progressing and it's always getting better. It's always getting better. It's always getting better. That's an untruth. It's not the truth of God's word. Man's heart remains completely sinful. Secondly, we see in Leviticus chapter 20, God's severity of dealing with these sins. God's not monkeying around. God's not saying, well, you know, let's see what happens. There is a severity with which God comes. Death over and over and over is mandated. Or they are cut off from amongst the people. Cut off as God's covenant people. No longer part of those covenant blessings and promises. Or, interestingly enough, something that that the people of Israel could do nothing about, but God in his divinity certainly can, would keep them childless. God is not fooling around. God is serious about these sins. And that's why he wants his people to deal with them seriously. For what's at stake? His holiness. His holiness. They're his people. They're to reflect his holiness. What kind of reflection are they if they are committing these kinds of sins that are listed here in Leviticus chapter 20? His name. His name is upon these Israelites. They are the Lord's people. That reminder comes to us, does it not, at baptism. 
at baptism, Christ puts his name upon us. We are claimed as the Lord's. Well, what, what does that say about the name of the Lord? If, if we as God's people are engaged in these kind of perversions. You see, God is jealous for us. Jealous in the right sense. God is jealous in that he wants and desires that which is good and right. It's the parent who grabs the arm of their child and says, Stop running around the fire. Because they're jealous for the well-being of their child. They want the best. And God desires the best for you and I as his people. And he desired the best for Israel. There is also his love for his son. You see, don't fail to forget that as we read at Leviticus chapter 20, God is, is understanding all of this and is aware of all of this and is knowledgeable of all of this and has planned and purposed all of this as to where this ends in Christ and the punishment that falls upon him. And every time God's people engage in these perversions. Think of what this does for the passion of the father for the son. Who is going to have to turn away forsaken. Think of the hymn we we sang a few minutes ago. His robes for ours. And, And all that... Passion that is going into that in in terms of of the suffering of Christ. And the father isn't going, oh, he's suffering a little bit. Don't worry about it. There's a pain there. And our sin causes that pain. Don't, don't, don't go down this road. It is a sin that needs to be dealt with. Thirdly, in regards to this immorality, that brings us to our society. Our society. Think of this passage in the context of the day and age in which you and I live. It's one thing to think about it, right, as the people of Israel back there in the Old Testament wandering through the desert and God comes and saying, don't do these things. Look at the society around us. It is no different than the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Moabites. And the desire even of those who are named as God's people to engage in this type of perversion and detestable practice. Even the state has some awareness of this. There are some laws on the books in regards to incestuous relationships. Does it go where this chapter goes? No, it does not. But that would leave us with a question, does it not? Do we still consider everything that God includes in this particular chapter to be sin? Well, certainly our society doesn't. Certainly the world around us would would probably laugh at some of these things. 
They, they would mock it and say, you got to be kidding. That's no way. Why is that so wrong? Why is that so bad? Nothing wrong with that. But I would hope that you and I as God's people would read this chapter and say, whatever is mentioned here, it was a sin then. It's a sin now. And God, just as he treated it severely then, deals with it and thinks about it as severely now. It's not that God has lightened it and said, oh, well, yeah, that one, yeah, I might have been a little carried away back there in Leviticus chapter 20, and yeah, that was pretty stern. But I, I've kind of learned now as God that I, those sorts of things I really shouldn't take as severely as I thought. You know, sometimes we as parents do overreact, don't we? We, we? we get a little overbearing. Perhaps we, we jump to conclusions. Perhaps we jump to a punishment too quick, too soon. And sometimes perhaps we've even had to go back to our children and say, I was wrong. I was wrong. Sorry. But God never does. I, Jehovah, change not. He never lessens the understanding of sin. So certainly there is work to be done, is there not? In our world and in our society. Would you and I love to live in a land in which the sins listed in Leviticus chapter 20 are still considered crimes? Absolutely. I can think of nothing better than to live in a land that understands the holiness of God. That's part of the problem in the day and age in which we live. That's not the concept of law. That's not the concept by which cases are decided. So we have much work ahead of us in that regard. But you know, God's word also tells us that it's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. Because the question is, society and the state has one particular view that certainly needs to be worked on. We should be advocates of change. But we better not be hypocrites. Saying one thing to be done over here, while over here, in that which is named the Church of Jesus Christ, These sorts of things go on. And I tell you nothing new, do I? That even the list that is contained here in Leviticus chapter 20 is no longer considered sin in most churches today. Nobody's going to go under church discipline for some of these things. Nobody's going to be censured. Nobody's going to be excommunicated for some of these things. Let me give you an example. It's not one of the sins, but it fits in as the example of where I'm headed. There was a vote just recently. Remember remember there was a vote about the, the Born Alive Act? Do you know who stood up in the U.S. House of Representatives and made a speech? Her name's Hillary Scolton. Yup, I'm naming the name. Hillary Scolton. Know who she is? 
Yeah, she just got elected from most of our districts. You want to hear her speech? Listen to the speech. I'm a pro-choice Christian, but I argue the fact that the Bible justifies abortion. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. I know you, I knew you when I formed you and placed you in your mother's womb. It doesn't say the government's womb or the speaker's womb. Therefore, I reject the idea if I embrace the sanctity of life, I must also be forced to invite the federal government in to regulate it. We must protect families from unnecessary government intrusion. The Bible teaches abortion. And she's a member in good standing, will never come under discipline of the Christian Reformed Church of North America. I'm not worried so much about the state. I'm more concerned about our attitude as the church. Do we see this as sin? Because God certainly does. Because God is a holy God. And he calls us to holiness. He calls us to holy living. He calls us to faithfulness. That's why included in this passage of Leviticus chapter 20, in the midst of all of this ugliness, okay? And and I say it again, it's ugly. It's horrific. God comes with reminders. Verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them. Look, these things are sin. And I treat them severely. You live in a world, and I live in a world, of great immorality of this day. Of reasoned Christianity that allows even the Bible to say it's okay to commit abortion. And by the way, the argument was in regards to killing a child or making the medical facilities do all they can to keep a child alive who was attempted to be aborted. That's where that argument came from. So if the desire was to abort and it didn't work, kill it anyway. Yeah, no church discipline there. But God comes, you see, with his reminders to our own hearts. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules And do them. 
God's word is to be our guide. Not society. It's not society's unspoken rules or woke rules of today's culture. That's not our guide. We, we, we don't go by what the latest periodical says. We don't go by the latest poll. We go by that which is the word of God. And then God throws in, you notice back at 27, okay, the, the last verse, again, okay, don't either go by the society, the peoples in whose land you're going to come, and don't go to those mediums and necromancers. Don't follow those other gods either. Don't follow the tenets of some other religion. You follow my rules. You follow my law. You keep them. If you want a good exercise for this afternoon, read all of Psalm 119. Over and over and over again, the psalmist, teach me, teach me, O Lord, thy law. Teach me. Give me understanding so that I know how to apply your law to my life. See, it's one thing we can talk out there. But we also need to address the in here. Am I following? Lord, teach me thy law. Lord, may the warning not just be the words of my parents telling me what to do around a campfire. Lord, may I have it in my heart that I may know it, that I might follow it. And then you read of the psalmist thinking of God's law as beauty, as sweet. This is, this is the most wonderful thing because I know that God's law is providing a protection and a hedge. It's keeping me from danger. It's keeping me from harm. But then I want you to note verse 24. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you, possess a land flowing with milk and honey. See, there's that picture of goodness in following the Lord. Why? Because I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. Do you see the reoccurring theme of where we were last week? I'm the one who sanctifies. I'm the one who makes you holy. I'm the one, God is saying, who has separated you. Holiness at its very core means to be a separated people. God says, that's what I've done. I've separated you. And we would ask the question, Lord, how have you separated us? How, how have you done that? Verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Lord, how have you done that? He's done it by covenant. Because the Lord has made covenant with them and with us. Covenant how? In the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, for them, for them, this is but foreseen, foreshadowed, right? It's shadowed in those animal sacrifices. 
For us, it's the reality of the cross. It's the reality of Christ's death. It's the reality of this table. It's the reality of Christ's crucified body and shed blood. It's the reality. And what does that do? What does Christ's blood do? It separates us from all the peoples of the world. Because we become holy. Not because of us. It's what God is doing. God's desire of covenant is to have holy people. His church, his bride. Set apart, set aside. By the blood of Christ. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles or 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is addressing the church at Corinth, which in the verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, he has already called them, they are sanctified. In other words, they are holy in Christ. But now Paul's dealing with some of the internal problems, some of the internal issues of the church. Go down to verse 9. Or do you not know That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. What's Leviticus 20 about? Sexual immorality. What's God saying? The sexually immoral. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. What? Will inherit the kingdom of God. The severity. And such some of you were. But you're washed. Now notice the word Paul uses. Because when you're done with reading that section of Leviticus chapter 20, don't you just want to take a bath? Sort of like, I just want to have a bath. I just want to feel clean. What what does Paul say? Some of you there in the church at Corinth, you, you were involved in these things. You did these things. You practiced these things. You were sexually immoral. Some of them practiced homosexuality. Some of them had practiced adultery. Thieves and greedy, drunkards, revilers. Some of you were. But you're washed, you're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. What a glorious thing, what a gracious thing, what a marvelous thing this is. That God's work has separated us. That God before the eons of time had his eye, had his knowledge upon an individual in that church of Corinth who was sexually immoral, who violated perhaps Leviticus chapter 20, one of the tenets thereof. And God says, no, no, 
I have separated you out. I have covenanted in the blood of Christ. I've washed you. I've sanctified you. And Paul is saying, understand that. Now live it. Live who you are. Live as the people of God. See, it's the way of life. Turn with me as well to the book of Colossians chapter 1. With this we'll close. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 21. He's addressing the same kind of circumstances as Corinth. Colossians 1.21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death. Why? What was the point? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why did Christ die? So that he might present you to the Father. Holy and blameless. Above reproach. That's why we come to this table to celebrate. That's why this is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. This isn't an act by which we save ourselves. This isn't an act by which we just have a great memory. This is something that we celebrate. We're celebrating the goodness of God. But look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Yes, God's way is to be our desire. God's way, the way of faith, that's what the Holy Spirit works within us, this desire to follow God's way. So we hear Leviticus chapter 20 and we say, God, may I never go there. God, I never want to go down that pathway because I know that that stands in opposition to the holiness for which Christ died. I know that's an affront to you. I know you desire for me to walk as you would have me walk. God's way is the desire of our heart. So in the midst of the ugliness of Leviticus 20, we again see the beauty. We see the beauty of God's gracious provision. His warnings against sin? Absolutely. His desire that we today still live according to that? Absolutely. That we have been provided, even if we have committed a sin as heinous as one of those, as was given to those church members of Corinth a washing, a cleansing through the blood of Christ that sanctifies us, 
some of us here will go, well, nice sermon, Pastor, but I've never committed one of those sins. Might challenge you on that. But even if that were true, I'll ask you a question. Are you a sinner? Well, yeah, yeah. Even your one sin needs to be washed and cleansed. Even one sin corrupts and brings the wrath and severity of God. And so this morning, don't go, well, that didn't apply to me. Oh, no, it does. Because all of our sin is ugliness in the sight of God. And Christ has paid it all. Father, thank you again for your word this morning. May it truly be a lamp upon our feet and a light upon our path. And now we pray, Father, for your blessing upon our time at the table. Be with Pastor Mark, Lord, as he leads us through that. May it truly be a celebration in our own hearts of your work of grace in Christ, in whose name we pray. And God's people say, amen.